This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's first ever live show. We are recording this episode at Town Hall in Seattle, Washington, currently a city awash in literary types, thanks to the annual AWP conference, although honestly, Seattle is a pretty literary city even in the absence of AWP. Thank you, everyone in Seattle, for being here. Let's please give it up for Seattle, Washington. I am here up on the stage uh, at Town Hall with Hannah Rosen, who's a Slate writer and the founder of Double X. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Dan. And also joining us is our first ever special guest book club member, Hugh Howie, who's the author of Wool and a new Amazon Kindle world story, Peace and Amber. Hello, Hugh. Hi. Thanks for having me. So we're here today to talk about Kurt Vonnegut's 1969 novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. It's the story of Billy Pilgrim, who has come unstuck in time. He lives through the bombing of Dresden, he lives through his sad middle-aged life, and he lives through being kidnapped by Tralfamadorians. But of course, one of the things that we'll talk about is really the story is not just about all that, but it's about the sad story of Private Kurt Vonnegut, who kind of lost everything in the firebombing of Dresden in World War II. Because this is a book club, we will be behaving as if we read the book, even though, as with all book clubs, none of us actually read the book. (laughs) But so if you are afraid of spoilers of Slaughterhouse-Five and you're listening to us on your iPod or whatever, you should pause it and go read Slaughterhouse-Five and then unpause it and come back. Our conversation will likely go all over the place. We typically hit a lot of topics in these conversations, but we can safely say that some of the things we'll talk about are uh, why this book felt revolutionary in 1969, why it really has served for many, many people, me included, as a real gateway drug into literature. We'll talk about the very unique structure of Slaughterhouse-Five. We'll talk about how the book fit into Vonnegut's life, particularly how he used it as a tool to deal with these memories, how it affected his career afterwards. Uh, And we're going to talk about your experience, Hugh, in writing in the Vonnegut universe in your fan fiction story, Peace and Amber. And at the end, we'll get questions from you, our beloved audience, um, about Vonnegut or science fiction or wool or Hugh Howie's guns or whatever. The first question I want to ask is, when we invited you on the show, Hugh, you and I talked a lot about what books we might talk about, and the book that we finally settled on was Slaughterhouse-Five. So can you talk a little bit about why this book particularly was appealing to you and why you thought it'd be fun to talk about with us? Yeah, the first thing, I, when I got the email, it was, you said it was the Audio Book Club, and I thought, I don't really listen to audiobooks, so I don't know... That's a flaw in our name, yeah. Yeah. So as we discussed it back and forth, I threw out some options, and one of them was a book that I was really living in, again, a book that I've experienced uh, three, maybe four different times in my life, and I was really living in it as I was writing Peace and Amber. And so I thought, you know, I, I felt like this book is still really relevant today. You know, you guys do classics as well as contemporary books. I thought this would be a great classic to revisit. It's a book that people... I think often really remember their first experience with. I remember that I read it my junior year in high school on the advice of a a teacher who 
one of the was one of those cool teachers who like introduced you to good books and who like saw something in me that was like, oh, this seems like a kid who's looking for something like this. I mean, I was reading like a lot of Tom Clancy, really like a lot of Tom Clancy. <laughs> um, and you were and, really depressed. <laughs> I know I wasn't that depressed, but I think I she I think that some teacher somewhere was like it was Miss Martin my modern lit teacher, and she was like, you know what, this is a kid who could maybe be doing better than Tom Clancy. But she recognized that this was a book that it's like a great stepping stone into books that deal with serious things in serious ways. When was the first time that you read it here? Yeah, it was in high school, and I didn't, I didn't like the book the first time I read it. I was confused by it. It was uh, not what I was expecting, mm-hmm. and the disjointed nature of it, I couldn't appreciate it at that age. And it wasn't until I, I was working in a bookstore just uh, four years ago. This was my day job while I was writing. And I took a science fiction class because we got one free class per semester for working on the university. And I took a science fiction class that taught this is one of their books. And I dreaded having to read it again. And it, was, it blew me away. I couldn't believe it was the same book because I wasn't the same person. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the most cathartic books I've ever read. It brought back, um, I don't know, some of my thoughts about 9-11 and, and our response and what war and peace meant. And I can see why people reading this in the late 60s had such a, um, an affinity for the book. Mm-hmm. How about you, Hannah? I think it resonates differently at different ages. So I actually think the reason that people read it in high school is the same reason they read Catcher in the Rye. It's not so much a gateway to serious literature as to meta-literature. Like, mm. it's just sort of out of the box. It's not written as a narrative. It's not written as a story. So it's a kind of blow-your-mind kind of thing. Oh, my God, books can be written like this, you know? Right. And then later on, when you get older, I think what you tune into is the mood of the book, right? It has a very consistent mood. And so that's what compels me now. Like often when I think about books, I do this when I finish reading a book, think about the pitch meeting. Like if you sat in the pitch meeting in Hollywood or wherever, like how would you pitch this book? You'd be like, well, it's about a guy who's writing a book, but he doesn't really finish the book. Like, is there a love story? Nah, he hates his wife. Like, (laughs) is there any action? Uh, there's a bombing, but it happens like in the last page. Like it doesn't make any sense as a pitch of a book, and yet it's totally consistent. Like when you read it, it's just, it's really great. One of the things that really amazed me about this book and rereading it was that mood that you talk about. Like I thought in my memory of having read this book when I was 17, it's a very sprightly book. It's funny. It's got drawings. It's got aliens. But I certainly did not remember that, in fact, the whole book is unbelievably gloomy and sad. (laughs) Um, And it's interesting to me, like, why do you think it was that in 1969, when this book came out, that it became like a real thing for youth culture at that time when it is, I mean, substantively a book about an, an old fart looking back at the war and feeling depressed all the time? Like, what do you think it was that connected at that time? I think the book works on two levels. One is a kind of conspiratorial, paranoid style of the late 60s in the sense that we are all the playthings of larger forces, but playthings of larger forces is also can be a synonym for depression or alienation or isolation. So I think both the kind of emotional state of Billy Pilgrim and that feeling that there are things you can't control in the world and they're like Manchurian candidate kind of feeling Mm -hmm. are very present in this book. So both of those would appeal to young protesters. And those both definitely, I mean, those both applied to Vonnegut at the time. Like he was both legitimately depressed almost his entire life and he also 
I mean, as a lot of his political writing showed, had a very dim view of the way that the puppets were being operated in the United States as he viewed it. Mm -hmm. It's like amazing to me to think of a time in American literature when a book like this could come out and like, so it landed on the front page of the New York Times book review. It was, an, it was a, like a definite sensation when it came out, but it also immediately connected to an entire generation that was not necessarily looking for literary novels to connect to. I wish I were there because I fully, I don't fully understand it. Like if you read his actual protest writing, like the writing he did in news, it's very straightforward. It's like not that interesting, right? He's just, he's like, you know, it's a conspiracy and war is terrible. He's like really kind of ranting. And this is so muted. Like the protest in here is muted. Like you could really just see this as like a depressed PTSD ex-veteran and it doesn't have any protest. It's just like a listless depressed veteran. I think, you know? it's, I think this is so much more powerful as a anti-war protest. I think to me, the most beautiful passage, the most beautiful scene in here is the idea of a war being played backward and all the buildings going back together and bombs reconstituting themselves and being sucked up into airplanes and the, the idea that bullets made things better as they, you know, were, were pulled out of everything and back into guns and then everything sent back to the U.S. where touchingly it's women who dismantle all the war making mm -hmm. mechanisms because as you read that, how absurd that idea is, what you do is you say, no, it actually happened forward. Oh no, that is the absurd thing. And it gets you questioning in the opening scene where the wife is really mad at him for writing a war book that she thinks is going to celebrate war. And he has to tell her, no, I'm going to write his war buddy's wife, Mary, yeah. who he dedicates the book to. I think that's such a powerful scene uh, and such a great way to open the book. It's so meta that he starts this book as a, a warning that this is not going to be a book that glorifies war, but one that really tears it down. So for me, I would give this more substance than a really loud rant, you know, where, where you kind of say it's not approachable. Instead, this kind of worms its way into your head a little bit and tells you, okay, there's something really wrong with, with the way we respond to violence with more violence. I also think that part of its power as a, as a protest book is in its resistance to narrative and coherence. And so, you know, in the way that people at the time were kind of picking apart ads that were trying to control your brain, it's like that. It's like any story that they're telling you about the war will unravel. Like there is no beginning and middle and end. It's not going to end up the way you think it's going to end up. It's all going to, the Vietnam War and I guess World War II, it's all going to be meaningless in the end. Right. Well, it's anti-literary in that way. I mean, there's a section that I actually want to read. There's an amazing section at the beginning of the book that I want to talk about a little bit more as we go on. But this prologue, uh, chapter one, a great deal of it is about the experience of writing the book in the voice of the character Kurt Vonnegut, who is a character who appears here and there in Billy Pilgrim's story, but is the, the driving character of this first section. And so every, we all have these different editions of um, Slaughterhouse-Five up here, so I don't know if your pages correspond to mine. But um, in my old Dell your, paperback. Your pages are in Roman numerals, right? Uh, my, my pages, yes. This is written in papyrus. But so he's talking about how he wrote the book and he sent it into his new editor, Seymour Lawrence, at Delacorte. That was his actual editor at Delacorte. He just made a three-book deal with Delacorte. And this was the first one he turned in. It was the book that would really change his career. And he says, the friends of Seymour Lawrence call him Sam. And I say to Sam now, Sam, here's the book. It is so short and jumbled and jangled, Sam, because there is nothing intelligent to say about a massacre. Everybody is supposed to be dead, to never say anything or want anything ever again. Everything is supposed to be very quiet after a massacre, and it always is. 
except for the birds. And then there's the line later where he, at the end of that section where he says, I finished my war book now. The next one I write is going to be fun. This one is a failure and had to be since it was written by a pillar of salt. And so I can just imagine like people in 1969 reading this book in the middle of the Vietnam War and reading, as you say, essentially an anti-narrative book, basically saying that the very notion of a war story is fundamentally corrupt. That's Mary's, his friend Bernard's wife's take that the idea of writing a story about the war in which heroism is celebrated is, is just an ideologically idiotic thing to do. And that's the message of the entire book, that war resists narrative. When you're writing a war story, you can't even have characters, as he says. War resists characters because everyone is so beaten down and fucked up by war that they can't even exhibit the characteristics of an enticing fictional character. And so an anti-novel, to me, becomes like a great anti-war statement because it's not only pushing against the idea of of war, but of the idea of the, of the valorizing of war and the odes to war that have forever been used to tell that story. The only pushback against that is that the book is so much about resignation. If it were 1969 or reading this book, I would just crawl into a hole and go to sleep. You know, there's so much about this that's like, just, you know, resign yourself. Like this phrase that occurs over and over in the book, so it goes. Right. So that's what Trafalmadorans say when someone dies because of the way they experience time, which we will talk about, I'm sure. But every time someone dies in the book, they so say, it so it goes. Right. And so what does that phrase mean? Apparently that phrase got taken up by Vietnam War protesters as a kind of rallying cry, but I don't exactly understand why, because so it goes is just fatalism, right? Like that's just these larger forces are there, and there's nothing we can do about them. Like Billy Pilgrim never gets angry. He never pushes back. When the bully is beating him up during the war, he just kind of stands there. Like the whole frustration with Billy Pilgrim when he's in the war is that he doesn't do anything. Well, he, he doesn't, doesn't do anything f- in the whole book. He's not an agent of change. Right. He's just the depressed lens through which we see, uh, I think, the way Kurt sees the world, which, like we were talking about earlier, is just a very depressing view of the world. And it yeah, is amazing that this became a rallying cry for change because it, you don't see it in the book. Yeah, like maybe, he doesn't ask his wife to, like, his, his, he just kind of ends up married to his wife. He ends up having these kids who just yell at him to do something. It's like nothing ever, he never does anything. But you maybe know? that's, there's the rallying cry. Maybe the frustration is seeing Billy's not going to do it. No one's going to make any change, not in this story. And as you read it, it's like a horror movie where you're like, don't go out in the woods. You want to shake these people for doing something stupid. You really want to shake Billy and say, wake up, take control of your life. And so doesn't that become the emotion that you're left with at the end of the book? It's not that you model yourself after these characters. It's that Kurt makes you so frustrated with the lack of an agent of change that it's up to you. At At the end of the book, it's like, well... I can either lay down and accept this, or I can say, you know, damn it, we're not going to take anymore. And maybe that is how this becomes something that motivates people. And so it goes isn't Billy Pilgrim's phrase. It isn't even Kurt Vonnegut's phrase, according to the logic of the book. It's the Trafalmadoran's phrase. It represents, you know, the idea, for those listening or here who, who have, it's been a long time since you've read this book, the, the Trafalmadorans are the aliens who kidnap Billy Pilgrim and take him into their interstellar zoo. How do you uh, know how to pronounce that word? Because I'm just faking it, Hannah. Do not call attention <laughs> to how I'm faking it on stage in front of everyone. You said it so smoothly. I know, you know? and now you ruined it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the Trafalmadorans... Um, <laughs> 
They kidnap Billy Pilgrim, and they experience time not as individual moments moving forward along a line, but as a long continuum. They experience, they view every moment in the universe simultaneously. So they, right now, if you talk to a Trafalmadoran, they know how the universe ends, and they know how it began, and they know how your life ends, and your life ends, and there's a great line in there where they say that they see all humans as like millipedes with a million legs, and at the one end, their baby legs, and at the other end, their old man legs. And so, so it goes is what they say about death, because death is ultimately irrelevant to them. And so the acts of war that the people in this book undergo and commit are also irrelevant to them. They're simply blips in the big picture that these Trafalmadorans live in. And so I guess that's fatalist, but there's also, I think, a curious amount of optimism to that in that if you can view this horrible war that America was going through in 1969 as simply a blip in history that we will one day get past, then I think So It Goes becomes like not exactly a great rallying cry, but something more than just a resigned, fatalistic creed occur, you know, of nothingness. You know, I think there's more to it than that. Wasn't the book criticized for the notion of lack of free will? Uh, you know, the serenity prayer and all these... I don't think Kurt had anything optimistic in mind when he wrote this. Uh, I like the way that you're seeing it. I think it's beautiful, but to, <laughs> to me, I, I, it really is a depressing book, but I think mm-hmm. it's important for that reason. Do you see Billy, I mean, your, excuse me, your books have heroes in them, right? They're like genuine heroes. They do things. They save people. Billy's not exactly an anti-hero because he's not evil, right? He's like an unhero. Like, what would you even call him? A non-hero, you know? I think he's what a depressed person must feel going through life. And as someone who's, you know, had bouts of serious depression, when he's talking about how wonderful it would be not to feel anything, and there's that phrase and those that mentality comes up over and over again in the book of how wonderful it would be not to feel at all. I feel like he's just a numb protagonist, and we just kind of see the world through his really sad eyes. And I think Kurt probably wrote more of himself into this character than even his meta prologue lets on. I think growing up, I had always viewed Vonnegut's surrogate in all of his books as Kilgore Trout, right? Because he's the writer, and he is often described as looking sort of Vonnegut-y. But this book is a very clear portrait of a, I think you're right, an extremely depressed person in the throes of it, depressed about his own past and depressed about what the future holds. There's this amazing line in this prologue that I thought about a lot reading at this time that I'm sure is a line that when I was 17, I just like zipped right past. But he is going with his kids on a road trip with his kids, and they cross uh, the Delaware River, he says, where George Washington crossed it, and they went to the New York World's Fair, He says, we saw what the past had been like, according to the Ford Motor Car Company and Walt Disney. We saw what the future would be like, according to General Motors. And I asked myself about the present, how wide it was, how deep it was, how much was mine to keep. To me, that definitely read as a person who saw himself as functionally lost in his own life. That there was this current sweeping him along and that the best he could do was try to understand it or navigate it, but that he was never really going to be like the pilot of his own life and his own existence. That things had been set in motion, maybe by Dresden or maybe by his the chemicals in his brain. In many of his books, he talks a lot about the way the chemicals in our brain affect us. There's a whole book that is about how damaging the big brains of humans are, a later book of his Galapagos, which is just really like an ode to how it would be a lot better for humans if we just had stupid bird brains. 
But isn't the larger political message that war just repeats itself? I mean, the, the message of this time book is, is a flat time, circle, Hannah. Yes, time is a circle. <laughs> Echolalia. We just have, you know, the book ends on this image of Echolalia, and we, it's just like meaningless repetition. You know, here I am writing about World War II when the Vietnam War is going on, and it just repeats and repeats and repeats, which is actually very different than what he wrote in his essays. His essays, which he wrote, you know, even up into the aughts. Uh, he often had a nostalgia about World War II. You know, that was a time when we actually cared about something, mm -hmm. when we understood what we were fighting for. Like, his actual political message is different than the message that you get in this book, which is just like, it's repeating, it's repeating. I think it would change over, I mean, 30 years goes by between publishing this and him writing in the aughts, and I think you forget why you wrote something that long ago. You know, I, there's not that much <laughs> yeah. consistency in our... Well, there's, our and there's even nostalgia. There's a kind of nostalgia in this. I mean, that whole prologue is about an old fart getting drunk and calling his war buddies to reminisce. And he even then knows that it's foolhardy in some ways. But the book is very honest about the ways that our emotions take hold of us, even though we know that they make us ridiculous. And trying yeah. to process it. Yeah. I, I think the most meta thing in here is this one sentence about how he wrote 4,000 pages to generate this very thin book. Right. And deleted, we're seeing just a fraction of the whole, which is how our lives are remembered. We have all these days, and we most of them are just deleted. And we have what's left are these little vignettes that are all out of, they're disjointed, and they're all out of order. And that's late in life, how we'll look back at it all. It's it's not a clean narrative, and there is no hero, and it's not climactic, and it doesn't make sense. And I think if this is taken as a biography, it's probably the most honest and accurate biography ever written because it, it doesn't have that beautiful plot arc, which very few of our lives are fortunate enough to have. Well, it's a Trafalmadoran novel, right? He describes what Trafalmadoran novels are. They are in little bits and pieces of people's lives or experiences put in seemingly at random that when you read them all together, create a beautiful whole. Why isn't his relationship with the aliens hopeful? Like, that's the one thing that cuts against his depression. I mean, the aliens are his friends. Kind of. My friends, too. So let's talk about the aliens. <laughs> Well, there's no decisions for him to make. And he's also, it's the only time he's a star. You know, people are applauding him brushing his teeth. He, he is a, mu a mundane person. And he has like a hot girlfriend. And they're celebrating. And, yeah. yeah, and then all of a sudden he's like, in his, in, and I think it's this dissociative, uh, this is one interpretation, but I think he's got this dissociative response after being damaged in an airplane accident. Like, he doesn't mention to anyone traveling through time until after the airplane accident. You know when he gets kidnapped? So this is something I only noticed this time. He gets kidnapped by the aliens one hour after receiving a phone call late at night from a drunk Kurt Vonnegut who's calling all his own war buddies. <laughs> so there's a section in the novel. So, you know, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time, and we understand this about him. But his actual kidnapping by the aliens happens. It is set in motion functionally because he gets one of those phone calls late at night from Kurt Vonnegut with his breath smelling like, what is it, that his breath roses and... Corpses or something? Yeah, remember, yeah, yeah. Yes. And then an hour later, that's when the aliens get him. And so there's this sense of Vonnegut feeling guilty about being the storyteller, of being the narrator of this book and putting this character, putting himself through the stupid things that he put himself through. And so, you know, Billy Pilgrim leads a totally ordinary, boring life, albeit one with tragedy and crisis in it. But then it all goes to shit when the narrator steps in and starts telling a story and gets involved and gets his hands dirty. 
And that was such an interesting moment to me that that is what sets this machine in motion. What's interesting is the aliens don't come and, and snag him so much as they land outside and lower a ladder. And this is one of the only big decisions that Billy makes in the entire story. He goes out and, and feels compelled. He goes out and grabs that ladder himself and feels like an electrical, uh, like an, an inability to resist the urge to go up this ladder. So it's like the one decision he makes is to dissociate with reality. It's not like the aliens force him or grab him or, or abduct him in any way. They just offer him a, an escape. And that's as manly as he gets. I mean, that's when he's like his manly self. And then he finds himself with a girlfriend, and all of a sudden he's well endowed, and things get a yes. lot better for Billy. You Bobo. never know who will get him. They you say. never know. He has yeah, his girlfriend, <laughs> who has the best name ever. Montana Wild Montana Hack. Montana Wild Hack. Yes. Yeah. I have this vision of Vonnegut like, working on this book for years. He told people for like 20 years that he was writing this book on Dresden. Which sounds like a writer, doesn't it? Yeah, but, but it also sounds like someone who had this, this experience that was the singular experience of his life where his writer brain, I'm sure, even as horrible as it was, some part of his writer brain had to be saying, well, this is it, this is my story. And he spent 20 years working on this book. There's that section in the prologue where he talks about writing the whole, um, like making a huge outline on an entire roll of wallpaper with the orange cross hatching where the firebombing happens and then like a couple of lifelines straggle out on the other side of it. But I have this vision of him in Iowa in like 1966 at some point being like, oh, aliens. <laughs> this, I'll have this is him get I'll... kidnapped by aliens. Yeah. That to me, it's not the being unstuck in time that makes this book something completely different from what I might have otherwise expected it to be. It's the aliens, right? It's that specific plot point. It's the, the way in which it departs from realism. Because the unstuck in time stuff is bizarre and it's science fiction-y or fantasy-esque, but it's still realism. It is still realism just scattered and smothered like a, uh, well, I guess like a, a Waffle House entree. But it's still realism. There's, there's still realistic things happening to him just in a cracked way. But when it departs from realism, it departs so spectacularly that it seems like, to me, reading it now, it seems like this is how Kurt Vonnegut cracked this story. That he worked on this book forever, but this is how he found a way to make it real to him, was by making it as totally off the wall as possible. Except that it's just Billy's delusion. It's not necessarily science fiction. Oh, you're like so his daughter's cynical. Always, no, but his daughter's always saying, like, ugh, not with the aliens again, Dad. Like, it's, well, his you know, daughter's an asshole. <laughs> right. <laughs> All the women are assholes. And Kurt or Vonnegut, sad. that's correct, yes. yes. That's what drew me to the book and the parallels that I had. When people, if it ever came up and someone found out where I was on 9-11, they would say, well, you're a writer. Why aren't you writing about that? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's hard to explain how that's something that you just know you'll never write about and that the harder you try, the more impossible it is. So my connection with Kurt when I started writing my fan fiction, because I used him as an excuse. So uh, back up a little bit, actually, and for those people listening or in the audience who don't know what Peace and Amber is, like explain to them what it is actually. So Amazon has the Kindle Worlds program where they mm-hmm. license worlds and people can write uh, fan fiction without worrying about reprisal. You can do this and know that no one's going to come sue you the pants off of you for doing it. And they asked me if I'd be interested in writing in Kurt Vonnegut's world, and I said, I think I'd be foolish to try. And then the more I thought about the catharsis I had reading this that summer that I took the science fiction class, 
I realized that he found a brilliant way, like you're saying, to write about a really damaging experience by stepping outside of it uh, and writing about absurdity. And really, Kurt was my excuse, just like the aliens were his excuse to write about Dresden. I was able to write about my 9-11 experiences by tackling something even more difficult and even crazier, which was to write in his world. So I said, yeah, I, I think I could write something in that. It's probably something you wouldn't want to publish because it was <laughs> going to be autobiographical. And What does it mean to write in his world? What does that mean? Well, like you can choose any character in his world. Yeah, you, and, could, yeah. you could write about Billy Program if you wanted. I didn't want to. I thought he was the, one of the least interesting characters in the book. He I was, was intentionally one of the least interesting intentionally, characters. Intentionally, yeah. yeah. I was drawn to Montana Wildhack, and so I thought... Who uh, wouldn't be? Well, but huh. not for that reason. I, I thought that he, I thought he didn't give her, I don't know, I, didn't, I thought she was really two-dimensional and mm-hmm. that there was a lot to her character. I mean, she's more of the tragic character. You call this two-dimensional? <laughs> well, it, it's... Sorry, a, for our listeners, I'm holding up the picture of her boobs that's in the book. <laughs> so I got to uh, play around with a story that I thought would never get published, which I probably think that he spent most of his time writing. So what book. drew you to her? Why her? Of all the characters that have tragic things happen to them in this story, I mean, she's the one who is just, if any of this is real, is brought there really to be a mate to Billy Pilgrim. And, you know, she's sunning by her pool in Palm Springs, and she's 20 years old, and she wakes up trapped with this guy. If, if she's a, <laughs> well, if she's a member, if she's a part of his delusion, which is kind of part of Kurt's delusion, I think it's even worse. She's just kind of a plaything and kind of a toy. And I, you know, took great liberty, I think, with... Uh, her character in my fan fiction, but it it was the counterpoint to the biographical parts of my story. And my wife is named Amber, and there's this one nice passage in here talking about time and lack of free will. They discuss a mosquito trapped in amber, like, that's your life. Yeah, here, I'll read that, actually. It's, um, this is right after the Trafalmadorans take him on the ship, and he says, Billy asks them, why me? And they say... That's a very earthling question to ask, Mr. Pilgrim. Why you? Why us, for that matter? Why anything? Because this moment simply is. Have you ever seen bugs trapped in amber? Yes. Billy, in fact, had a paperweight in his office, which was a blob of polished amber with three ladybugs embedded in it. Well, here we are, Mr. Pilgrim, trapped in the amber of this moment. There is no why. Yeah, I was uh, really moved by that passage, and, and it worked well that my wife is named Amber, and my wife is a psychologist, and she met me after 9-11 and recognized the way I responded to some things and panic attacks and things that I had going on. She was like, you realize you have PTSD? And I'm like, that's only people who go to war have that. And she was like, oh, honey, you have a lot to learn. (laughs) And as I made progress and really writing this fan fiction was like the cathartic experience that got me over it where I could talk about it in public without breaking down. And it was uh, writing something that I knew was even more difficult in, in some ways, and writing just about 9-11, writing something that I knew would be public and that would be take place in this world and that was contracted by somebody else instead of just writing my own thing. And I thought it would be a disappointment to everybody and, and please no one. Mm-hmm. And that somehow all that pressure made it possible to write about something that I had avoided for a long time. And why do you write through women? I mean, you're in wool that's a heroine. You know, it's like the main person in the book is a heroine. Why, why is that easier for you or why are you drawn to that? Yeah, the same is true of my, my first series, uh, Young Adult Space Opera. The main character is a woman who's told she can't be a pilot, you know, that women aren't good enough. And so, you know, she proves people wrong. 
if I'm writing about overcoming odds or writing about an uprising or the downtrodden trying to win liberty, I think there's something, an added layer of meaning if it's a woman. I think Mm -hmm. what I hope is that 100 years from now, it would be the gender wouldn't matter. But right now, I think that there is still room for women to win more equality. So it adds a second layer of meaning that they are overcoming long odds. I'm sure I'm a product of my time. Like I say, I would love for it in the future not to matter and not to add any meaning at all that you would write from a woman's perspective. But also, I spent more of my life studying women. I was raised by a single mom who worked three jobs to, to raise three kids. And my wife, is, um, who I've been with for 12 years, is a very strong and, and powerful woman. So you don't see yourself as much as you see the people that mm-hmm. you're around. Also, women are like... There's like significantly more interesting than dudes. Like, totally. contra We're the lesson out, of yes. Slaughterhouse Five, yeah. which is that women are un- uninteresting or fat and unmarriageable or porn stars. Like, women are yeah, just generally richer with characters. Women is, I mean, you, it's fast. It's, do you know anything about that? I'm, I don't know anything about his. Well, so he was married to uh, a woman he met like very young, and they were married through the war, and then he divorced her and married Jane Kermentz, the mm-hmm. photographer who he was with for the rest of his life, although they had their ups and downs. Um, and at one point she filed for divorce and then they, and then that filing was taken back where they, you know, agreed to stay with each other. Also his mother committed suicide. Also his mother committed suicide. He was in training for the army at the onset of World War II. And he got a Mother's Day pass to go back home to visit his mom, and while he was there, she killed herself. But There's yes. one nice woman in the book. There's at least one nice woman. Wait, which Mary, one? Mary, the nurse in the beginning. Yeah. The children's true. crusade, the one who... Oh, yeah, the, yeah Bernard DeVoto's Devo- yeah. yeah. wife. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. Yes. That's it. That's it. But yeah. so I was trying to remember, like, are there, like, good women in the rest of Kurt Vonnegut's oeuvre? And I remember there's, like... Cat's Cradle. Is the, there, are there women in that? The girl that he worships because she's beautiful... And it ends so up that being does a lot, sound like a full and rich character. Except, except that she ends up being more complex than that and like rejects him and ends up being uh, you know, quite the heroine, I think, uh, at mm-hmm. the end. The women in Galapagos end up sort of being the heroes. Like they are the ones who make the human earth I feel like survive. we have to apologize for Kurt. Yeah. Every writer has his blind spots. And Kurt Vonnegut, this book reminded me that there were a lot of really amazing things that he could do Despite his obvious blind spots, some of them came from being a product of his time, and some of them came from being a depressive alcoholic, and some of them came from just being a weird dude. But the guy could, like, write. So I want to actually just take a moment, and everyone, find, please, in your book, something, a line in here that just made you just die with pleasure. I'm going first, because I don't want you to take any of mine. Um, (laughs) I want to do this section, which is, it's on page 34 in my edition, and it's when they're out in the field in Germany during World War II, and it's talking about that horrible asshole, Weary, the guy who believes himself to be part of the Three Musketeers, except for that everyone hates him and he's a jerk. But so this is how Weary's entire gun crew got killed. Weary was as new to war as Billy. He was a replacement, too. As a part of a gun crew, he had helped to fire one shot in anger from a 57-millimeter anti-tank gun, The gun made a ripping sound like the opening of the zipper on the fly of God Almighty. (laughs) I wrote two exclamation points next to that. (laughs) The gun lapped up snow and vegetation with a blowtorch 30 feet long. The flame left a black arrow on the ground showing the Germans exactly where the gun was hidden. The shot was a miss. What had been missed was a Tiger tank. 
It swiveled its 88-millimeter snout around sniffingly, saw the arrow on the ground. It fired. It killed everybody on the gun crew but Weary. So it goes. So, like, that section that is a tiny and perfect and incredibly written tragicomic set piece, which, like, that was the section when I was rereading it that made me, like, stand up and go, oh, I mean, there is mood and there is sentiment in this book and there's a great like there's this amazing anti-war message but there's also like legitimately amazing writing he's great character descriptions like he describes one guy as fizzing with rabies which is great yes oh the guy who declares he's going to have all his enemies killed after the war yes lazaro i'm going to read the first his physical description of billy pilgrim i'll skip around but last came billy pilgrim empty-handed bleakly ready for death Billy was preposterous, six feet and three inches tall with a chest and shoulders like a box of kitchen matches. I couldn't exactly visualize that, but it was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And then he ends that section with, he didn't look like a soldier at all. He looked like a filthy flamingo. (laughs) Here is Kurt Vonnegut describing himself at the age of 18 when he reached his adult height of six foot two. I was a real skinny, narrow-shouldered boy, a preposterous kind of flamingo. What's with the flamingo? You really thought he looked like a flamingo. (laughs) I'm going to read from the the part I mentioned earlier about the war running in reverse. Mm -hmm. When the bombers got back to their base, the steel cylinders were taken from the racks and shipped back to the United States of America, where factories were operating day and night, dismantling the cylinders, separating the dangerous contents into minerals. Touchingly, it was mainly women who did this work. The minerals were then shipped to specialists in remote areas, it was their business to put them into the ground, to hide them cleverly, so they would never hurt anybody ever again. Not only is the idea of this beautiful, but it's almost sad to think of Kurt, like so hurt and damaged by what he saw, and this is his fantasy to like put these things back in the ground where they couldn't do to him uh, or to anyone else what they had done to him. I mean, there are his moments of hopefulness are very kind of childlike and emotional, like the calling at the children's crusade. I mean, the hope comes in a kind of unsophisticated, like a five-year-old would say, like where they can never hurt anyone again. Like it's as visceral as that. What is the significance of the bombing coming at the very end of the book and them being in the slaughterhouse? Like he effectively misses the bombing, right? He's underground during the bombing. Is that a sort of sense of powerlessness, you know, when you're underground and the bombing is... Like, what are you feeling when you're in the slaughterhouse and you know that the city's being destroyed above your head? I think the people who didn't miss the bombing didn't survive. I think the, the aftermath of the bombing is what was traumatic for him and to see, to see the slaughter. And uh, at one point he talks about the fire was so bad that people who got into a water tank to try to survive the bombing were boiled alive. In the, so there's these really gruesome things that he saw... There's a one point in the book where he, he stops in the middle of all these horrible descriptions and says, that was me, I was there. It just jumps out of the narrative and back mm-hmm. into that prologue. That's right. That was an amazing moment. Yeah. yeah. And oh yeah, when you're reading that, you're just like, uh, you realize this is the stuff he's not making up. And he gives you enough hints in the prologue to tell you, look, the guy who got killed for stealing a teapot, the, these things really happened. A guy who's promised to have a friend murdered after the, or, or tried to get someone killed after the war. Those things were all true. So I I don't think he missed the bombing at all. I think he got probably some of the worst parts of it. But also, putting it at the end of the book and putting it entirely off stage and dealt with glancingly, it's another way of subverting story, right? Of subverting war stories. It's saying in any other 
war book, this would be the climax. It's the huge, literally explosive ending of this story. But here, he's not going to give you any of that, even descriptive pleasure of seeing the bombs bursting in air or whatever. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's not what this book is about. This book is about the pure random chance that keeps this bunch of idiot American soldiers who everyone hates alive and keeps the beautiful girls who are taking showers next door and kills them and kills everyone in Dresden and destroys the beautiful architecture of Dresden. But these fucking idiots in fatigues who even the British soldiers don't like, they survive and they make it through and they live their entire lives remembering this stupid, pointless event. And they survive in a slaughterhouse, which is yeah. the great irony of the, the location and the title of the book, that it's the people in the slaughterhouse who make it out and the people in the city who don't. There's a lot of reactions you could have to being in that situation, like survivor's guilt or passivity. But in fact, the, the thing that jumps out for him is absurdity. Like what he, the way he interprets what happened is just random absurdity. Yes. That once again, the accidents of fate or God or the Trafalmadorians or whatever are what put him in this position. And he, like Billy Pilgrim, was just shuffling his way through not even really at, at this point caring if he survived. And that the fact that he did survive is like functionally an insult to all the much better people than he was at age 18 who didn't make it through that experience. The Slaughterhouse Five story reminds me of, um, it reminded me, I had a very interesting rabbi kind of do a reinterpretation of the story where, you know, the houses of the Jews are marked and they, they skip the houses of the Jews and kill the firstborn except in the Jewish houses. And that's often read as a, as a, like a hopeful, dramatic story. And, and someone pointed out, like, what do you feel like when you're locked behind the door and outside you hear everybody else kind of screaming and their children being killed, right? So it's not actually, you know, it just, it feels like random absurdity to you. It doesn't feel like, oh, you've been saved. Isn't that wonderful? Like, that's the way the story has always been read. But of course, that's not the way that that thing would be experienced, which is sort of how these guys trapped in the slaughterhouse would experience it as crazy and absurd. What did you guys think about the British soldiers who they encounter who i love that scene i love them too as far as i can tell it's one of the only parts of the war stories that is not true that did not actually happen in vonnegut's life like that whole scene with all the british soldiers that they run into with the great rations who put on cinderella for them and then look on with disgust as all the american soldiers shit their brains out because of the rich meal they gave them one of them shitting his brains out being kurt vonnegut according to this story. Why but, do you know it's not true? Is that sad? Well, I don't know for sure. True? I mean, I'm basing it on the, like, the chronology in the back of this Library of America edition of Vonnegut's later novels that has a very detailed chronology of his experience in the war. And it refers to almost every specific individual event that happens in Slaughterhouse-Five, including that they were actually in a slaughterhouse. But it does not refer to these British soldiers. I mean, it says that they are transferred to a Dresden factory, or no, on New Year's Day, the boxcar is open and Vonnegut and his fellow prisoners are provided showers, bunks, and starvation rations of cold potato soup and brown bread. So that, to me, does not say that they met a bunch of British soldiers who had amazing rations and made them like a rich, deluxe meal. But who are the fools in that story? Like, are the British the fools or the Americans are the fools? Like, the British with their, you know, sense of, like, civility and, you know, you shouldn't be... Dre- like, that's no way to dress in the middle of a war, you know? <laughs> uh, I thought this, Fix your cuffs, man. I thought the scenes were so detailed that I can't imagine there not being some element of truth to them. It's possible it is, and I mean, I'm basing this... I didn't even Google it, for God's sake. <laughs> 
I just How, looked in the back of if, this book. If you're not so reading it off the internet, I don't trust but it. Is, but it is also, like, fantastical when you think about it. Like, the idea that German guards would have so respected these British soldiers who'd been there for five years that they would let them get quadruple rations from the Red Cross and not steal them seems unlikely on its face. <laughs> and it also is so thematically rich of a scene. And the answer is, the fools are the British. I mean, the fools are anyone who thinks... There's any kind of honor in war, that you can maintain honor in war and who would be dumb enough to think that these American soldiers who are coming into their midst might be the, as much a hero as they are. But when it's sub-honor, like nobody's a hero. It's not, the British are not uh, purporting to be honorable or brave. They're enforcing a sense of decorum. Right. It's like another way of being absurd. You know, they're as absurd as like Billy Pilgrim's dreams about the giraffe. Like they're just kind of randomly asserting a certain kind of way of being and looking and dressing and eating in the middle of a war. I have a question for you guys. How old... Do you think Kurt Vonnegut was when he wrote this book? How old is the person who wrote this book seem? I think he's 40. Mm -hmm. It's a midlife crisis book. A midlife crisis book? Yeah. All right. That's, you guys are better than me. I definitely, upon reading this, would have thought that he was like 70 years old. Like that's, it reads I bet, like, I bet that's his cynicism. I bet at 18 he sounded 70. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it just seems like so much like the book of a really old man looking back on his life and being like, Jesus, this sucked. And, like, there's that scene where Billy Pilgrim flashes back to when he was 16 and he's in the waiting room at the doctor's office and there's a helplessly farting old man there who can't stop with the gas and he eventually just says, I knew getting old would be bad, but I didn't know it would be this bad. But so he was, like, 45 when he wrote this book, which to me is not, like, old enough to be obsessed with how old you are. But it reads to me like the book of an old, old man. See, I think back 45 was different. And I think 45 was different back then. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's right. No, that's 40 true. is the new 20. I think he, he sounds exactly 45 to me because that's the phase in life where you're kind of unlatched from narrative. It's like until that, you're like raising children, doing things. And when you get old, you're kind of walking towards death. But in that midlife part, yeah. <laughs> you're just kind of, you're like loosed from your social role and you're just kind of floating free. I've, right. I've got friends having their first kids at 45, you know. And 45 is different now than it was before. Yeah. But so I have like six years, you you say till I till I, it all I'm goes the to one shit. who's obviously closest to 45 yeah, that's on true. the stage, so that's I know true. what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So thank you very much to um, Hannah and Hugh, and we are now going to go to questions from the crowd. So um, if you have a question for us, please, we have microphones here. Step up to them. It can be about Slaughterhouse Five. It can be about wool. It can be about how handsome we are. Whatever, it doesn't matter, but please speak into the microphone so everyone can hear you. Yes, we have our first question right here. Um, I really enjoyed myself tonight. Thank you so much, and welcome to Seattle. Thank um, you. You touched a little bit on the depression in Kurt's family, and I'm wondering if you can talk about how you think that Kurt influenced or didn't the movement that we made towards acceptance of mental illness as a legitimate disease. Certainly, um, his son had experiences and wrote quite a bit about that. Um, you guys talked about the experiences that he had with his mother and there was depression elsewhere in his family. And I think that the, um, the, how you characterized it um, was that Vonnegut described um, mental illness as chemicals not functioning right in the brain. So I'm wondering if you can, guys can just talk a little bit um, maybe about the role that he did or maybe didn't play in how we view mental illness differently now than, than when he wrote this book. Throughout the 70s and 80s, you essentially had millions of people reading books in which 
depression was dealt with specifically not only as something, a real thing that can change your life for the worse, but also as a chemical cocktail or a disease or disorder that that is not a character flaw in the way that it was often thought of in mid-century. I think that that must have had some effect. I mean, I have no idea of how much he tangibly changed the views of most people. Definitely everything that I understood about serious depression as a teenager and as a 20-year-old basically came from reading Kurt Vonnegut novels. Like, that was how I understood the way that that worked. That was also an era, though, of romanticizing mental illness. Like, mental illness was a way of being outside the box, and, like, you wouldn't just accept what was going on in the world, you know? You were you understood that there was a conspiracy happening, and everybody else said you were crazy, but you just saw the truth more than other people. You know, that was like a late 60s, you know, that's what mental illness is about. Yeah, I think it was a normalizing experience to read um, how unhinged he could be in his characters, and you could feel you could feel okay with yourself exploring Kurt's world. Other questions? Yes. Hi. Hi. I was his student at Iowa when he was writing Slaughterhouse Five. Really? But so one thing you said, I just wanted to correct in terms of the actual record. I'm writing a book now on his advice, mm-hmm. so I'm rereading from the beginning to the end, and I've talked to his children about his mother's suicide. According to Mark Vonnegut, it's not even absolutely clear it was a suicide. Really? When she first died, people didn't call it suicide, but she died by an overdose of barbiturates. Mm -hmm. And she was a very absent mother and was a drug addict, basically, on barbiturates at that time. So just to to clear that that little fact up. Thank you. You're welcome. So I, think I, guess awesome. was, I wish we would have had you on the stage. You yeah. would have like firsthand knowledge. I, I wish I had amazing. been too. I would love to talk to you actually. So I'm gonna, time. I'm gonna No, the whole the whole fan fiction idea is I mean, I'm I'm just very interested in what you did. Also as a New Yorker my, in nine eleven. My so. email is I'll give you my card okay, afterwards. We'll do that. We'll... Yes, this side. Hi. Um so you kind of touched on this earlier, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about why this book in particular, and I think Vonnegut in general, is really, really popular with high schooler teenagers, because I also read it when I was a freshman in high school, and I think that's just a, a very common first kind of serious book that younger people read, and I wonder if you could just talk about why you think. All the books that struck me when I was in high school the most were the books that exploded in some way, and you mentioned this a little bit, that exploded in some way the idea of what an important book could be. And this was the biggest one for me. And last weekend, or the weekend before, I went to Baltimore with my kids, and we took them to the American Visionary Art Museum, which is a really marvelous museum in Baltimore that is made up completely of art by visionary artists who are also often known as... They're not folk artists exactly, but they are... um, Outsider. Outsider artists, yes. Their terms are often used interchangeably, but they're artists who are usually not formally trained and who are creating works out of some very particular vision, often over a long period of time. So, you know, there's like a 10-foot model of the Lusitania made out of 100,000 toothpicks and stuff like that. And to see my kids get an idea 
that something like that could be art, could be in a museum, or that a machine where you push a button and it makes fart noises could be art and could be in a museum. Like, watching that blow their minds reminded me of the way that reading Slaughterhouse-Five blew my mind when I was in high school, that something like this could be entertaining and funny and sad, but also I could have a teacher telling me this is an important novel that means a lot of things to a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's a, his works are anti-authority works, and at yeah. that age, you're looking for... People are telling you these are the rules, and you're saying, I don't want to abide by your rules. I want to do my own thing. And there's this um, anti-paternal movement of like wanting to cast off your, your dad or your mom and saying, I'm going to be my own person. And you read, this is held up as real literature, and reading it, it's like, it's doing everything wrong and everything different. And that's what you want to do when you're a kid. You want to do everything wrong and everything different. And Kurt becomes your mentor and your, kind of your buddy for getting through that phase of your life. When I worked in a bookstore, we purposely had all the Kurt Vonnegut books in a place that we could see them from our desk. Oh, yeah. Because they were the ones that just disappeared like they that. They got it. Those things get shoplifted like crazy. Actually, the Bible was number one, and then Kurt yeah. Vonnegut was the second. That's awesome. Uh, yes. yes. Um, I was wondering if when Vonnegut reuses his characters quite a bit, and if reading where you have Kilgore Trout in this book or Howard W. Campbell, if that helps enhance the book Slaughterhouse-Five and those characters more than if you just saw them on their own in Slaughterhouse-Five versus in the other books where they take play or, or occur in, like Mother Night or so forth. That is a good question, and it, that was one of the things that I thought was fun about the idea of writing in Vonnegut's world because he's one of the few literary authors who has a world. I mean, there are recurring characters who travel from book to book to book to book to book. Elliot Rosewater's in this book, uh, Kilgore Trout, a bunch of other people. Um, Ilium, I mean, the, the town itself is a constant character. I think Kurt Vonnegut was almost writing his own fan fiction. He, Kilgore Trout was based on his friend Theodore Sturgeon. You know, Sturgeon is a type of fish, and you have trout, and Theodore Sturgeon was a science fiction author, and um, there was some controversy there with when that was outed and, and whether or not it put some tension between their friendship. So he brought reality into his works more than just this prologue. It was very meta the way he, he did this and did it through his books. Someone asked me once if I thought that Kurt would um, support people writing fan fiction in his world, and I, and I say no, he would be very upset about it because he didn't think of it first. Um, <laughs> this is the kind of thing that, that he did with his own work and that he would have done, I mean, he did it with his own friends where he brought them into his world and played with them without their permission. So that sort of cynicism and breaking the rules means that like writing fan fiction is in the spirit of Kurt Vonnegut while also probably pissing him off and rolling him over in his, in his grave. And, and I think it's okay for it to be both, to be like homage to him while also pissing him off. I'm sure Amazon's Kindle Worlds program just loves me to give yeah. that kind of endorsement. Yeah. Write books that will make creators roll in their graves with Kindle Worlds. Hi, I first wanted to say I actually am a high school student who read this book for the first time before this event. So hearing you guys Hooray! talk. Yeah. <laughs> hearing you guys talk, I can't wait to read it again in 20 years and I'll like it even more. It's going to um, so fast for you. <laughs> um, so my question is, I think it's pretty safe to assume that Billy Pilgrim's trips to Trafalfador uh, are hallucinations, but if they were not, and if they were actual literal sci-fi alien abductions, how do you think that would change Vonnegut's um, lessons around fate and free will? Around faith and free will? Fate, fate. and free will. Fate and free will. I maybe disagree with the premise. I don't know that I'm going to go ahead and say that these are Billy Pilgrim's hallucinations. I don't want to say that they're not. Crazy. That, are you That's saying, just, thank you. No, yes. I mean... 
Why not? Why, like, why can this novel not be? Why can we not take Billy Pilgrim at his word? I like it better if it did happen. Yeah. If it did actually happen. And I mean, I guess I mean, one of the reasons I liked Peace and Amber is that it functionally makes, it establishes this theoretical canon that the aliens are real because it tells Montana's version of the story of her getting abducted. Right. But so let's say, let's say that maybe they're just hallucinations. So if they're hallucinations, what is the lesson of this novel on fate and free will? It's that there is no fate and there is no free will. Well, it is the one time when Billy almost succumb, like succumbs as a not completely passive act. Like if he mm-hmm. were actually abducted by aliens, we would rob him of the one moment of half agency <laughs> that he <laughs> has in this novel. So, because then he would just be literally plucked and like he wouldn't have decided. There's a way in which he kind of half decides to enter this world and becomes like macho in this world, and you know. He dies back on Earth, so how does he ever escape? That's the plot hole for me. Ah, shit. And I, I guess it was a hallucination. Yeah, I avoided that <laughs> when I made it not a hallucination, but I yeah. think that that's, there's a problem there where he's zipping back and forth between the two because he's unstuck in time, but his chronology ends up with him not dying on Trophimador. That's true. Uh, so what happens with the baby? Maybe the baby uh, grows up and becomes the hero and, and breaks him, busts him out of prison. So That's someone your next please, story. someone please write some baby, some baby pilgrim fan fiction. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yes. yes. Uh, towards the end of his life, or I guess towards the end of the book, Billy says if he's going to spend a bunch of time revisiting all these moments of his life, at least so many of them are beautiful. Do you have any thoughts on where the beauty actually is? Because it's such a dark. That's a, gr- and, that's that's a awesome great, question. great question. Surely that was put in there to. I don't think Kirk is taking that seriously when he's, when he's writing that, but I, I think for Billy, the, he's almost a simpleton throughout this whole book, and his moments of happiness are standing on a road with bullets tumbling by his head. And being he really stuck. likes that muff that he puts his hands in for a while, yeah, the, the it, fur coat that he gets. It's like the, the simple little happy things, um, you know, being past a pot of pee in a train and pouring it out the ventilation shaft and having a job to do. And when they passed in food, like everyone was really cool and shared their food for a moment. So I think, I don't know what Kurt's saying about um, his own life, but maybe for Billy at least, the most banal and ordinary of things were to him beautiful. Mm. I think that's kind of a sad... Well, there's a way of seeing Billy as a monk. I mean, the way he goes through the war is like a monk, right? He doesn't get pulled in by the tragedy. He just lives in the moment. He doesn't, you know, he just sort of walks through it unharmed in a funny way. Like, he's not destroyed by war. He is in some way, but the delusions kind of wall him off from that. He's happy in a weird, depressed way. There's that amazing line um, when he has just gotten married or he's about to get married and his his wife-to-be says that she can't believe that anyone would ever marry her. And he it tells her that he's delighted because he's seen the future and he knows that it's never really that bad. Right. right. <laughs> Their marriage is, like, basically fine. Right. I think that's the level of beauty that this book gets to. Did Kurt Vonnegut introduce the idea of alien abduction into our culture? Like, was I, he the first to write about it? Oh, I can't imagine. No, because no. that became a phenomenon before he wrote this. I think it was... Um, uh, back in the 50s. It was like H.G. Wells, the radio. The, the space race. and yeah. I'm going to Google it on stage because that makes for good, for good live shows and good radio. Um, Carl Sagan wrote um, an entire book about this. Uh, was it the, the candle? Basically, we took the succubi and incubi that were 
abducting people in olden times, and as soon as we started exploring the heavens and invented aliens in our own image, they replaced the succubi as the thing that were that was pulling us off. So abductions have been going on for thousands of years. We've just changed what it is abducting us as we've updated our mythology. And as soon as aliens became part of that mythology, they became the, the agents of our abductions. There's the also first, some the first alien abduction claimed to be widely publicized was the Betty and Barney Hill abduction in 1961. Reports of the abduction phenomenon have been made around the world, but are most common in English-speaking countries. Oh, this is just Wikipedia boilerplate, sorry. <laughs> are, you, are you writing this on Wikipedia as you're doing it? So it seems like they were actually a big thing in the 50s and 60s. Like, in the real world, like, people were claiming them, and they were making the news. So I don't know that he, whether or not he introduced it into fiction, but he definitely tapped into something that was, like, going on in the culture at that time. We're not very inventive. As soon as we started going into space, we invented them coming after us. Yes. So all this talk about fatalism and the lack of free will and agency in this book sort of made me think about the end of Breakfast of Champions, where there's this very sort of touching sequence where Vonnegut comes down and presents himself to Kilgore Trout, who's like encased in some sort of plastic that he's been wading through this river of and is just in a shit state and sort of says, I'm, I'm releasing you. Like, I'm letting my characters free. Uh-huh. And I kind of wonder, is that a, a moment in his evolving psychology of, is he moving away from this sort of just fatalist, existentialist feeling of everyone is just these puppets where the strings are moving, the narrator is moving them off, off camera. And Vonnegut has a great mistrust of the role of storytelling in the real world. He clearly, from this book and from other books, has a sense that though his job is to write stories, the characters he's writing about are frequently ill-served by their creator. And I had not remembered that scene at all until you just said it, but it is a really fascinating scene. Vonnegut was, he never really was not depressed. I mean, even when his life was great and he was making tons of money and was hugely popular, he was still really depressed. He had a breakdown in 1984 and attempted suicide. But he did seem to find pleasure in life in the 70s and 80s that had maybe escaped him a little bit earlier. He went on these speaking tours every spring and fall that seemed to be a real highlight for him. He really loved talking at colleges. And so it's not hard for me to imagine that there was some evolution. And the later novels of Vonnegut are a little bit brighter. And his political writing that you were talking about, the stuff that he published in magazines in the 90s and 2000s, was angry, but it did suggest some kind of agency on the part of the American people. It suggested that we had a chance to change our fates and what might be happening to us. So it wasn't that fatalistic, necessarily. It was, I mean, it was a bummer, but it was not fatalistic. I just wanted to ask about um, one point where you say that he goes to the aliens willingly, and this is his one moment of... I just wanted to... So there's a point where it says, um, the ladder comes down, and Billy's will was paralyzed by a zap gun aimed at him from one of the portholes, which oh, I... Yeah, that doesn't sound that willing. Yeah, oh. I... Do- <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can edit that out of the... Uh, <laughs> audio podcast. Well, that's okay. I mean... So, one of the reasons he is so calm about going up into space, of course, is that he has already known for years that he's going to go up in space, and it's not a big deal. Right. I'd forgotten about the zap gun. <laughs> but at this, Obviously, I had to. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but it's interesting. Like, he exhibits no fear. 
He knows that what's ahead of him, like his marriage, is going to be not actually all that bad. Uh, But I guess he's just a fucking puppet in that, the same as he is in everything else. He never exhibits fear. Even in war, he doesn't exhibit fear. Shots are going by, he doesn't exhibit fear. It's like an odd thing. He's getting beaten up by that bully. People are dying in that train car that he's in, and he's, you know, very Panglossian about it. There's got to be some kind of... Someone must have written, like, a master's thesis on, like... Billy Pilgrim, emotionless homunculus. <laughs> I, I guess I would just say that the one point where I think he actually does exhibit some kind of free will is when he goes against his asshole daughter and says, I'm going to talk about this, and then eventually is shot while he's presenting to a group in Chicago, like telling the truth as he knows it. So That's true. I agree with you that the aliens are real. Doesn't right, he gets in a car and like seeks, he, he, he tries to get, get to that radio station. That right, talk, that, doesn't, he, um, doesn't he start talking about the fact that he's going to get shot soon like during that speech yeah well so we we the 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 only time we see billy pilgrim really late in his life is many years after the primary events of the center of this novel where he decides to start telling the truth where he seems to have become of like an extremely popular figure telling truths about trafalmador to large audiences and he gives a speech to a large audience in which he says at the end of the speech i'm going to be shot don't try and stop him. It's just going to happen. It's okay. But you do get the sense, oh, my God, I never even really thought about this, but this is really interesting. So Billy Pilgrim essentially finds satisfaction in life and agency in his life through the process of telling fantastical stories, the exact thing that Kurt Vonnegut seems to be in some way arguing against or at least, or at least mistrusting. But so the stories of war are not what give Kurt Vonnegut any real satisfaction or or make his life sensical, but the stories of bananas, crazy Trafalmador bullshit are what give Billy Pilgrim like a real meaning to his life. They're what I found that really life. poignant because it was like prefiguring what Kurt Vonnegut would become, like an old, you know, when he in his old age, like railing against the powers that be and yeah. telling truth to power. Like that's exactly what Kurt Vonnegut did in you know the newspapers when he got older. I like to imagine that Billy Pilgrim also had a cameo in Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield, <laughs> <laughs> the greatest author cameo ever in any movie in America. All right, our last question right here. You guys talked a lot about in what ways is this a war story, in what ways is it not, and what ways does it question authority and all of that, with mixing vignettes together, not having a real climax. When you guys were talking about that, I was actually thinking about Tim O'Brien, mm-hmm. the things they carried, and in particular, how to tell a true war story, because in there he does things like he takes what would be the climax of his story and he breaks it up, and he tells it in little sections, and he, he makes comments like, I can't really remember, but it's, it's stuff like there's no true morality in your war story, and when you read a true war story, you just your only reaction is, oh. So I was wondering if you guys could just, if there were any like other war writers or just anything you could add to it, like just to compare what Vonnegut does. I mean, O'Brien is a great comparison because O'Brien, the whole lesson of the things they carried is to mistrust the stories of war that people want to tell you. And that book goes even further than this book does in suggesting that those stories that we typically tell of war are as dangerous in many ways as the war itself, right? That those are the things that inspire visions of glory in young people, and those are the things that get them killed inevitably. And it also is a lot more honest. I don't know if honest is the right word, but it is a lot more blunt than Slaughterhouse-Five is about the way that 
rethinking and reconsidering and retelling these stories damages you even as you try and make it heal you. I mean, it's a really astonishing book. And I think they both do have in common this sense of using the process of trying to contextualize a war story and changing the details as suits you as a way of making it, as O'Brien says, more true than true, right? That's what that book is all about. I was thinking of Apocalypse Now, you know, the the way movies started to unravel hero stories. Like that, Platoon yeah. as well. Yeah, and Platoon, right. There was like... I think our expectations of what a war story should be color our reading of books like this. When I remembered reading this in high school, Weary was like some... He was older and he was like some kind of a badass. And in reality, <laughs> when I'm reading it old, when I'm reading it as a... Because that, that's what in my head he had to be because he was acting like one. So he must have been. But when you read it, he's 18, and the only shot he fires is that one shot from a cannon that misses and gets everyone in his platoon killed. Like, he's not a badass. He, he thinks he is. And I think he's kind of represents what you're talking about. He is the war novel, where when you read it, you're like, oh, this is all heroic. This is all awesome. But in reality, he's the child who is in a, he's probably terrified, acting like a bully. And um, maybe one more level of meta-ness to this, but... That was interesting to me, reading it a second time and thinking, I don't, this is not the character I remembered at all. A program note, our next audiobook club selection for next month comes from right here in Seattle, Washington. We will be talking about Where'd You Go, Bernadette? That is Maria Semple's bestseller about how everyone in Seattle has only two hairstyles, short gray hair and long gray hair. So does everyone in Seattle really love that book? You just cheerfully love that she's being really mean to all of you? (laughs) Is Maria Semple here? Are you here, Maria Semple? (laughs) The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You will find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Please visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I told you this was going to be magical. That helps other people discover the show. Just search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you are there. Our producer and the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is the wonderful, talented Andy Bowers. For Hannah Rosen and Hugh Howie, I am Dan Coyce. Thank you for listening and thank you to our wonderful audience here in Seattle for having us here. 